0: Welcome to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy. A new podcast title I hear you shout. Well, for the next 10 weeks, yes, as today I launch my partnership with Toronto-based behavioural science consultancy, BE Works, with the purpose of bringing real BS closer to you, my listeners. Now, the team at BE Works and I both share a great interest in behavioural science in the wild. In other words, translating it from the theory to the real messy world. And so in the coming weeks, we're bringing you stories from the leading lights. who are right at the heart of the action from organisations like Coca-Cola, Novartis, NatWest Bank and the World Bank. Now, BE Works is a multidisciplinary team of behavioural scientists and psychologists co-founded by none other than Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar, who in fact joined me on the show in April with Dilip Soman. Dan, by the way, is joining us for a chat in a couple of weeks time, and that will be one to look out for. Now, these conversations will be short, sharp and digestible mouthfuls for you to consume. Perfect for the commute to your home office or even for a dog walk. Now, to kick off the series today, I'm delighted to welcome BE Works' new CEO, Warder Malik. We're going to set the industry scene and talk about creating sustainable behavioural change at scale. What skills are needed to be a successful behavioural scientist, diversity of talent in the field, the next frontier for BS research and application and BS in the Wild West. I'm thrilled you're joining us and if you like it and think friends and colleagues might do too, do share the love. It's the way we grow and spread the BS word. Now on with the show. Warder, welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to kick off this new series in the podcast and be chatting with you today.
0: Absolutely. It's a great pleasure. And of course, doubly wonderful to welcome you as the new CEO of BE Works, my partner for this new series of podcasts on behavioral science in the wild. In other words, what it all means in the messy real world, how it's applied beyond the university lab and cafeteria experiments. And so it seems a perfect kickoff for us to have a chat about how you and your team of behavioral scientists at BE Works think about the challenges of using BS to create meaningful, high-impact solutions for the greatest problems our society faces today. that, of course, feels like a rather a grand starting point, but I think it's the worthwhile one because, in my mind, we have the power to make real change, to help people make better decisions and choices in their lives for their future well-being. So let's get to it. And my first question really is, when BE work sits down with a new client or a prospect and they ask you what your model is, what your methodology is, what your approach is to helping businesses translate all the scientific theory into applicable, scalable impact, let's say the small Matter of solving poverty and inequality, or maybe something a little more manageable than that. But you know, what do you say? What's your starting point?
1: Brilliant question. I think really our starting point is to truly understand why this challenge is meaningful. What is that end goal in sight? Where do they want to get to? What is the vision that they have once this project is complete? How might we define success? And I always find it helpful to make sure that we are on the right path of whatever we scope out, whatever project we're kicking off is really understanding where we want to get to and defining success. Because with that in mind, we can break that down into what are all of the psychological and behavioral things that are getting in the way of us accomplishing this end outcome that's of critical importance. And I love, you know, you pick this example of poverty and all of these things are so multifaceted. They need to be broken down further. They need to be distilled and defined and have the behaviors that underpin them defined as well. So once we sort of understand that grand vision and plan, we then work with our clients to break that down into manageable steps, which then allows us to apply our expertise of what is the science that can help us understand why people are doing the things that we would want them to do in order to get to that end outcome
0: i mean you touch on poverty there and indeed i'd be fascinated to know what are the sectors indeed the kinds of social problems that you guys are really excited about entering into and solving and maybe you can bring that to life with some examples of work that you're most proud of of you know projects you've worked on the sorts of problems that you've been addressing
1: I think as we're sort of re-engineering our vision and where we want to go, you kicked off with the fact that behavioral science has an opportunity to truly change the world and to improve people's lives. We are 100% committed to that belief and want to make sure that all of the work that we are doing has the social good component to it. So our work currently exists within financial services. How do you help people save better, make the right financial choices? have money for retirement in place. A lot of what we have been doing today has been ineffective and there's millions of people that are gonna be unprepared for the retirement stage of their life let alone all of the other decisions that have to be made. And the world is changing so rapidly within how investments are done. You know, we've got Robinhood, we've got Bitcoin, we've got cryptocurrency. Things are becoming ever more complicated. And that leaves so much room for poor decision making to occur. So financial services is certainly one of them healthcare as well, health tech we've seen since COVID, the ways that we are interacting with our practitioners, with doctors, accessibility has completely changed. Mental health is now a topic of interest. And I think also there's a movement away and a skepticism around the medical community. As a result, we've seen that rift happen during COVID. And so much needs to be understood about conspiratorial thinking and, you know, where crystals are helping people. And maybe they are to a degree, but, you know, it's not scientific. Specifically proven to have occurred. And, you know, the placebo effect is at play. So there's so many things happening within health as well. And the future of all of these fields is changing.
0: I mean, so much happening, as you say, so many worthwhile causes to address. I think one of the big challenge that the behavioral science industry faces is creating impact at scale. That's an important question. I think there's Clearly, like there's a global plethora of nudge units, but it's not clear to me always what meaningful, sustainable impact they make. You know, we see behavioral scientists running huge field studies with lots of conditions, but often these are still just testing small changes in big systems, you know, like the wording of instructions in an app or the types of letter we send to taxpayers. Lots of classic examples that anyone who's read the popular literature would be familiar with. But if we think about what the specific steps might be, How do we actually move from the world of short-term nudges to thinking about changing behavior for the long term? And maybe that's the sort of question, as new into your role as CEO at BE Works, you might be thinking about.
1: We've been trying to classify the types of challenges that behavioral science can solve. I think all of these small nudges fall into what we are calling the tinkering and optimization category of work. Something exists in the world. It can be made better through the approaches that we bring to bear. There are science to help support that. So why not fix what is broken? And that is important work to do. And it does scale for the most part. We've seen improvements with retirement savings, 401ks, a whole host of improvements that defaults can bring into our lives. Then there's this new category that we're calling the reimagining category. That's the creation of net new strategies. Things don't exist in the world, but behavioral science and our understanding of the ways that people think can still inform them. This is where we're going to need more of that hands-on, constant iteration process. Once things have been built and launched into the world, that's where we have the opportunity to measure them and work closely with our clients to ensure that we're not just saying that it's one set of nudges and they're going to work in purpose. Perpetuity, that needs to be closely studied and understood because behaviors are getting more and more complex.
0: Absolutely. Of course, I think implicit in the impact question is also surely the talent that drives it. I'm very conscious, by the way, we're flying around a lot of rather big industry topics here, but we're gonna try and cram in as many of the important headlines as we can. So, the question of talent in the industry, it strikes me, firstly, and you're very welcome to knock me down on this, but it strikes me that there is insufficient diversity in the field. And I'm glad to say that this whole podcast series is bucking that trend and not in any deliberate way, I hasten to add, but we are nevertheless dominated by white middle-aged men from privileged academic backgrounds. And I wonder, do you agree with my diversity hypothesis? And if so, are we missing out on asking all the right questions and finding the right answers?
1: Well, I think the diversity one is an interesting one. Just yesterday, I was talking to my team and they were saying that there are more females in PhD programs. And so therefore, women should be overrepresented in our staff as well. We were looking at our staff and diversity numbers. And so that's something to keep in mind is that women tend to pursue higher education. They tend to be the ones getting their PhDs. And so how are these units actually staffed in a way that's representative of what that population is? So if we are seeing too many white men, well, there's an issue there because it's not as a result of the talent pool. That talent pool exists, it's perhaps hiring practices and the decisions that, you know, these individuals might be choosing to stay in academia rather than not. I think the other piece is around cultures and where are these groups located. They tend to be more westernized and North American. We're really excited to sort of seek out schools in other parts of the world, in other regions. Right now, we are having conversations about what a joint program might look like in different parts of the world. And I think that's the way to sort of improve the cultural relevance and the aspect of lived experience that is going to be critical to the next generation of this field, moving beyond the Western world to other parts of the world so that we are studying them and increasing their scientific contributions.
0: I mean, as CEO of a behavioral science consultancy, what knowledge base or skill set do you think is required to add value as a practitioner.
1: These are still internal debates that we are having in full transparency because historically we have hired PhDs, but we need PhDs that have this sort of consulting acumen and this way of seeing the world. And so internally we have a training process that they undertake to sort of speak a different language. Somebody in our team, I think said it best is that we're all speaking English, but we're speaking different English. And so there's this natural shift in language. And as I said, when we start off any project, we're trying to understand with our clients, what is that end goal in sight? What are those big, you know, multiple behaviors that you're looking to change in the strategy? And I think that typically... A PhD or an academic is not asking those big, wide, messy questions or trying to immediately get down to that single core behavior. And the world's challenges just don't fit in a neat box and they often don't fit in a single neat lab experiment. And with time moving as quickly as it can and impact and speed of critical importance, we kind of need to sort of reshape the way that we are training PhDs that get hired or master students that get hired and brought into these practitioner programs us, it's something that we're doing in-house, but we're hoping that we can actually partner with different schools to help build that. Yeah, it's
0: a really interesting analogy you raise about different languages, because of course, behavioral science is a relatively young mixture of languages or disciplines. Maybe it's a positive that, you know, if you ask a behavioral scientist with a background, say, in psychology, that you'd get one answer. And if you ask a behavioral scientist the same question with a background in economics, you'll get another. Maybe as long as you're answering the client brief effectively, that doesn't matter. But it is an observation to make that, as you say, that it's complex, at least, that there are these different languages at play.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also truly believe that the best behavioral science teams are going to be multidisciplinary and that there might be designers, there might be developers, you know, there's masters and PhD students, researchers on there. To me, that is the future of what our teams need to look like because we need to start building things. And implementation is so critically important. We've felt like historically some of our work was just handed over and delivered in reports and it may or may not make it into the real world. And so it's great that we did all of this research and we came up with these brilliant ideas, but if the government that we're working with or the client that we're working with can't ultimately implement them, well, that's not really behavioral science in the real world and it's not even going to have an opportunity to make an impact. So whether we're working with our clients or internally, we want to bring those capabilities in-house.
0: Let's remain forward-facing and talk a little about the future. One of the things that people talk frequently about, and this is not only, of course, in the behavioural science industry, but more commonplace, is how data and artificial intelligence can enhance the behavioural science field. I'm really fascinated to understand what are you know the tangible examples of how better access to data and artificial intelligence how are they starting to do that
1: there's some really fascinating work underway right now some of what we are doing in-house with our clients And the exercise here is what are those biases that we have that we can reliably measure in the world? So when you think about something like the optimism bias and how that might influence our trading decisions or our investment decisions on a particular platform, how loss-averse we are, these are individual sensitivities, how risk-averse we are, that varies amongst people and it varies within the same person depending on the time of the year. And so once you can start to model these individual attributes we can look for one-to-one interventions that can be deployed to those people because we have a better understanding of what are those fundamental biases that they are higher on or lower on that are ultimately guiding their decisions. So we're working on creating a tool with a partner of ours right now to actually measure what are those things that we can reliably measure and then how might we deploy one-to-one interventions that leads to those better financial outcomes for them. And you can imagine this happening at scale in the healthcare space as well well, who's more present-focused and who's going to be more tempted to have that treat versus go to the gym? And so those might be as we start to get into this data-driven world and the quantified self, there might be other attributes and aspects of our personality that we can start to understand so that we can manage them better, but that perhaps the tools and science can come together to support us at a more individual level.
0: So ultimately what you're saying, amongst other things, is that this allows us to create far more tailored, personalised, one-to-one solutions, Another area which I find highly promising is the intersection of behavioral science and what we might call cognitive technology, because this can really help us More easily, you might say, be who we want to be. So, for example, automatic Mm -hmm. alerts or pop-up nudges could hit us throughout the day, suggesting the perfectly balanced breakfast, presenting goals and specific tasks for the day ahead, or nudging us to break and socialise with colleagues with a list of people whose contributions will maximise creativity, and so on. So these sorts of Mm behaviour tracking systems can overcome our cognitive biases, and maybe this makes us happier. But as the question is is an ethical question, is how do we know when we've crossed an ethical line? How do we see the danger point, if there is one, where the sort of natural variability and serendipity of our daily life that makes us human is removed? I and, mean, of course, the other way of thinking about this or contextualising, it might be within financial services, where, of course, we think about adding or removing friction to particular customer experiences. So clearly there are very positive nudges which support Customers' well being around using credit cards or helping people kind of control and manage and budget around their spending. But on the other hand, you know, you have digital wallets like Apple and Google Pay, which make it extremely easy and encourage people to spend more. It's sort of the development of the credit card, if you like, which did the same beyond cash. And maybe there's an argument there that one actually needs to add friction back to the process. So it's not always about making it easier for us to do things, there's a line sometimes where we have to sort of think, is this always absolutely for our well-being? There are times when actually we should retain some choice rather than being endlessly nudged and guided for the benefit of other businesses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea that you have posed that it's often easy to do the things that are not always aligned to our well-being. And the tapping of credit cards is a really great example. I've often thought that they make it so easy to spend and a lot harder to save. And if only we could tap to save if we had to move money around. So where are those other elements of convenience and ease that we can build into technology today, I think that needs to be studied. When we think about sustainability, it's the same thing. It's so easy to not be sustainable, to actually do the opposite, to pick up small sample bottles or to order something with a few clicks on your phone in different packages arriving at different times of day with no sense of what is the carbon impact, what is the waste that comes out of this. So again, it's like that other side of this cycle is often not looked at. And I think that technology can help us there but it's getting better. I think that there are some, you know, the time tracking that's happening in phones is helpful. We have to set up the defaults in our technology and be mindful of the fact that it can start to run our lives. I think we have to, at the individual level right now, assess where are those defaults? Where is the technology trying to control me? I do simple things like I make my Instagram because I realized I was maybe spending too much time or I didn't feel good you know, on Instagram. So I actually put it in a hidden folder and I added friction to getting to that Instagram app. So even just looking at the way that your defaults are set, where are your temptations and how easy is it for you to click on them? That's something that I think we can all just start to reevaluate and take a, a critical lens to the technology that yeah. seems to be our lives today.
0: this through these ethical questions is the question of standards in the industry because despite all the good interventions and their potential, the behavioural science industry is in many ways like the Wild West. You know, we have no agreed industry standards or accreditation processes, no common ethical edicts. There's no, as far as I'm aware, institutional body to adjudicate the big issues. So there's a sense that maybe the field lacks a sort of a global organisation or authority and direction. I don't know whether you think that matters or whether we need to do anything about that.
1: I think it's really difficult because on the one hand, putting that in place, does that sort of remove the accessibility of the field? You know, if we think about design thinking, for example, and the way that it took off, and that anybody can be a design thinker. I think that behavioral science or scientific thinking is truly a way of seeing the world. And we want to encourage as many people within organizations and in governments to sort of adopt these approaches. So some set of standard, I think, are certainly necessary. There's this ethical commitment to using it for good. But we know that a lot of technology Companies are hiring behavioral scientists and their main objectives are to make the tech stickier. That's what makes them money. I don't know how we're going to overcome that. Even if there was a standard or an oath that was signed, would it really change things? So to me, it's, is it really leading to the better outcomes that we want? Ultimately, as a behavioral scientist, we have to ask that question.
0: Indeed, there is really so much to discuss. And I think this conversation today acts as the springboard for further understanding about how we think about behavioral science in the realms of things that you've touched on, financial services, healthcare, FMCG, sustainability, and more. And we'll do so you know, by learning from experts in those fields. And that's all coming in the weeks ahead. So With that, Warder, let's hopefully leave the crowd baying for a little more. And let me thank you enormously for kicking off our podcast partnership today by sharing insights on some of the key headline topics that surround behavioural science. And I hope that today sets a helpful context for our listeners before we dive into further conversations with leading lights in the field. So only to say thank you and onwards and upwards.
1: Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. You were such a joy to talk to. And I know we could keep chatting. So thank thank you to all the listeners as well today.
0: That was a rather racy whirlwind of a show. And in the coming weeks, we'll dive into greater detail on some of the topics we touched on thank you to warder for coping with such a fire hose panoply of quick fire questions next week we welcome sarita bethea to the show sarita is the lead behavioral scientist at coca cola she is a delight to talk to a real firebrand for her cause join me for that next week until then be well and love to you all